Hello everyone, my name is Alicia and welcome back to Luck Be a Soldier, a podcast where my father, Major General Ali Kiza, speaks to us about his experiences in his over 50 years as an active member of Uganda's Air Force. In the last episode, we got to hear about some of the memorable events that took place for him inside of the cockpit. And in today's episode, I would like the soldier to talk to us about being under the command of someone who has been described as the ultimate dictator, Africa's icon of evil, and the butcher of Uganda, Idi Amin Dada. Hello, Dan. Hello, young lady. So, Idi Amin, the infamous... His story has been documented so much throughout the years. And I believe that there's a possibility that someone like that can become sort of a myth. Because he has had Hollywood movies made about him. He has had best-selling books written about him. And for people who did not experience him, were not alive at the time he was president, they may think that his story is just fodder for entertainment but he's not just entertainment he was a real person and you knew him yes i knew idi amin i first heard about idi amin when i was in secondary school that there was a soldier i think he was a colonel who could meet people on the gulu road and beat them up if they annoyed him then when i joined the army he was, in quotation, the deputy army commander, and the brigadier Opolot was the army commander. But immediately we joined, that's when the Mengo or the Uganda and the central government war broke out, and brigadier Opolot was arrested, and Major General Idi Amin Dada, at that time he was a colonel, became the commander of the armed forces. After that, I never met him physically, but... Uh, he had uh, made up uh, a, a sort of game. He used to call it Kalmojong football. And it was a, a mix of rugby and uh, soccer. So at one time there was a competition for, between the battalions of Uganda. And we went to Mbarara for playing this each battalion or each unit. And that's when I first saw Idi Amin physically playing uh, this Karamojong football. What did you think about him then? Because I've read that he was an imposing figure. He was around six foot four. He was a big guy. What did you think when you saw him? Well, when I first saw him, uh, he was, uh, of course, an imposing figure. He was bigger than any one of us around, but very jolly. He was very, very jolly. Loved playing his uh, um, Karmojong ball. But all you had heard about him at that time was that he would beat up some people. You hadn't heard about any other stories? Because I will tell you, he does have a reputation of being a cannibal. The way people describe him is like he wasn't a real person. And it's so funny that one time I was going through a history book. I think I was around P4. I was flipping through the book and I saw this picture and I saw Idi Amin. And right next to him, I was like, hold on, I know that guy. It looked like it was taken in a studio. Idi Amin was in the front. There were four of you in the picture. He was seated in the front and the three of you were standing behind him. It looked like 
a group of friends taking a picture <laughs> in a studio. So it was shocking to me because this was a cannibal, because that's what I knew him as, and you were in the picture with him. So had you heard any of those stories? Had you heard about the mythical side of him that people used to talk about? I had not heard uh, that mythical story which I hear people say. Maybe there's nobody to prove that Idi Amin was a cannibal. Idi Amin was a normal person, but uh, of course he was a dictatorial. Being a dictator is not, uh, he's the, not the only one. Many people have uh, turned into dictators. So those are myths that he was a cannibal, I think. So any human being can turn into a person that is a board, yes. <laughs> so what was your first actual interaction with Idi Amin outside of playing sports? Like when did you actually first speak to him? After started uh, flying uh, uh, VIP passengers, I flew him to Arua and then brought him back to Entebbe with the part of his family. That's the first time I ever interacted with him, but he was a normal person, senior commander, commander of the armed forces, and I just flew him as my VIP. He was a friendly guy. He was friendly, yes. Very friendly most of the time, jovial. So then when did you start working closely with him? Really working closely with him, I would say when I started flying him on the presidential jet after we had received the presidential jet in 1974. But before that, he was the commander. We'd meet maybe in a group with other people. Uh, the picture you are describing, I, I can't remember which it was, but maybe it was army officers with him and they wanted a picture of some sort. I can't remember that picture. I wish I could see it. That was a long time ago. I was in primary school when I saw it. While you were around him, were there any signs that something could be brewing, that he could be the one taking over power? No, I didn't have that feeling that he could take over power. Mostly we thought, because of his limited education, some of us thought maybe he could not take power. But then he did. Could you tell us about that time? Yes, he did take over power. This taking over power of Idi Amin has a lot of stories which keep changing. There's a story that Idi Amin was the one who killed or instigated the killing of Brigadier Okoya in Igulu. Who was Brigadier Okoya? Brigadier Okoya was commanding officer of the battalion in Imbarara at that time. And some people think he was destined to become the army commander to replace Idi Amin. And maybe that's why he, he was eliminated early enough. So in January of 1970, Brigadier Okoya and his wife were killed at their home in Igulu where he had gone out to have a bath in the evening. They were assassinated. They were shot at their home. The man was shot when the woman, the wife heard of the, of the commotion outside. She came out and she was shot. Both of them were killed. So what did that lead to? Their death led to an investigation. Some people were arrested. Among those arrested was a brigadier, he was Captain Smarts Guedeko, who was a pilot in the Air Force. 
and whom I was staying with in the officer's mess in the Air Force, and he was arrested. Even the police criminal investigation department came to the mess and interviewed me whether I had known where, Brigadier, where Captain Gredeko was on that day, and uh, I couldn't tell where he was exactly because he was a free person who could have been anywhere. And I was free, I didn't have to be in the mess on that day. But uh, I was interviewed about the whereabouts of Guedeco on the day Brigadier Okoya was killed. So what happened to those who were arrested? Well, those who were arrested because they were removed a year later when Idi Amin took over. And Captain Guedeco came eventually a deputy commander of the Air Force, although he was also killed in uh, Amin's time. So tell us about Idi Amin taking over, the events that were around that time. The rumors of uh, Idi Amin and the establishment at that time were that uh, the government of President Milton Obote wanted somehow to get rid of Amin, get him out of the power of being army commander. Why did they want to do that? I have no much idea why they wanted to do that. But maybe through intelligence, they had sensed maybe he may become a president. He had ambition. Yeah, maybe he had had ambition. So in 1970, when president of Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser, died, the day of independence of Uganda, 9th October, the independence was cancelled, independence celebrations were cancelled, and Idi Amin, was sent to represent Uganda at the burial of President Abdel Nasser in Egypt. But uh, while he was there, uh, rumor goes that he, the government wanted to arrest him on his way back. Had he done anything to warrant an arrest? I couldn't tell at that time what was inside. The, I, I was at the bottom of the office circle, so I couldn't tell really what was happening. But uh, by doing that, Amin's close associates also learned of the rumor, and the day he was supposed to come back is when they were supposed to arrest him. So he changed his ticket and arrived a day earlier, and he had his people waiting for him at the airport. They just drove him out of the airport and into Kampala. So there was no way they could arrest him. But he was in Uganda, so they could arrest him. Well, they feared that he was highly guarded so it was not easy to just go to him and arrest him. But in the airport, it would have been maybe easier once he comes out of the airport. Or they arrest him while he, before he comes out of the airport and they take, they take him out through another route. So they really feared him and his power. They feared him and his power. Then the Commonwealth Conference, which was in Singapore in 1971, January, Obote went for that com- conference. When Obote went... Things started brewing up here a bit. According to some sources, the soldiers in a Lubiri barracks were told to go into a hall and be addressed. And the person who addressed them was the little joke. The way he addressed them, they claim that it showed that the people of the law speaking, the Acholi and the Langi, were going to rise against the people of West Nile mostly. And that sparked off the whole fight on the, that particular day. But on my part, at that time I had been left 
as the acting adjutant of the Entebbe Air Base. The substantive adjutant, Captain Onek, was in Jinja on a course, on a military course. So on Friday, before the coup, we had an, an intelligence officer called Kamia. Kamia came to my office and said, there are thieves who are terrorizing the country, and we, I've got contact. If we can get police, it's possible to arrest them. Now, at that time, the uh, military could not arrest civilians just like that. So I told him to go to the police in Entebbe, and I talked to the police in Entebbe. I arranged on Saturday morning, we go and, uh, and inform the central police station in Kampala and the senior officers of the police to go and lay a way how we would arrest these people. That time in Uganda, they, they used to be called Kondol. There was even a word called Kondoism, which meant robbery with violence. Mm -hmm. So these Kondo people, we were trying to lay a trap arresting them, but the senior officers of the police were not in office on that Saturday. We used to work Saturday uh, from morning to 1 p.m. That's how the government worked. But the senior police officers at the headquarters were not there. We waited and waited and they could not come. Then the people were saying, oh, they are in a, an emergency meeting. They are in an emergency meeting and uh, I didn't know what the emergency meeting was for. So I left it there. We said, we'll do it next week on Monday. We'll try and work on it. Then on Sunday, I was coming from Kampala. And on the way past Lieutenant Colonel Ito Jok, he said, what is he coming to do from the Ntebe side? But people in Ntebe said he came and addressed some officers, especially the Lua speaking, on that Sunday. And when he left Ntebe is when he went to Roviri and addressed soldiers. And the soldiers from West Nile became riotous. They rioted and arrested most of the Lua speaking people in Roviri. And the, everything started from there. Now, Uganda is considered the most ethnically diverse country in the world. There are over 40 tribes. So at that time, obviously, there were very many people in the military, very many people of different tribes. So why was it the people of West Nile and the people of Luo, why were they warring each other? Well, they were the predominant people in the military. The Luo speakers and the people from West Nile, they were the most predominant people in the military at that time. So the fight was between those two tribes or two ethnicities. Others were really just observers. Like you. Like me. I was an observer. Now, I'll show you how I, I was an observer. On the night, Sunday, Idi Amin took over on Monday, January 25th. 1971. Now, on Sunday night, as I was sleeping in, my, in the officer's mess, we had a visitor's self-contained house, which hosted the two officers. Then I was in the main building. As I was sleeping around uh, 2 a.m., I heard a, a knock and a hoot of a car on the visitor's extension. At 2 a.m., I, I said, who could be coming out of our officer's mess at this time? Then I peeped out. I saw a military truck standing there with uh, one of the drivers 
who was supposed to be on duty. This truck, we used to use it as a duty truck to drive around to check on people doing guard here and there. So I woke up, went out and talked to this soldier. said, what is happening? How is it you come at this time here? As I was talking, there was Lieutenant Droti, who was our intelligence officer in the Air Force, but he was a Madi from West Nile. Lieutenant Droti came out. But before Lieutenant Droti came out, this uh, driver told me, the driver was also from West Nile. He told me, there is a standby number one in the barracks. I said, standby number one? Which means everybody must be ready for fighting or for some action. How is it we are not informed? He said, well, I don't know, but uh, I was told to come and pick uh, this uh, Lieutenant Droti. I said, well, if you stand by number one, I'm also going. I went and dressed up and entered the truck. It was an open truck uh, pickup. So I sat in the back. I looked around in the mess. There were no other officers uh, who had spent there the, the weekend. So we went to the barracks. Did you have any inkling that something is wrong? Did you have any eerie feeling? At this time, I had no any inkling, any feeling of anything being wrong. I was just surprised how something would happen in the barracks and they call only a few selected people. So when I reached the barracks, since I was the acting adjutant, I was the acting adjutant and I didn't know there is a standby number one in the barracks. You were just like, what's going on? What's going on? So when I reached the barracks, I found most of the low-speaking officers. They, They were the majority, okay, but they were seated they were all in civilian clothes. They were seated at the adjutant's office, the base commander's office, where the adjutant was in Katavi barracks. So I said, what's going on? Everybody kept quiet. One of them said, oh, we hear there is a foreign force which has come and is uh, trying to attack Mbuya barracks. Mbuya was the army headquarters in Kampala. So we sat, somebody had a radio there, they put on Radio South Africa. When they put on Radio South Africa, at around 5 a.m., Radio South Africa started the news. The first thing they said was, there is fighting in the Ghanaian capital, Kampala, and he suspected the commander of the army, Major General Idi Amin Dada, has been killed. Without thinking, I just said, what? And everybody turned and looked at me. Then I realized there must be something wrong. How is it it is only me who is surprised that the commander of the army might have been killed and other people are looking at me like, didn't I know? So we stayed there. I asked the substantive adjutant who was Captain Onek. He had come for the weekend, although he was in a course in Ginger. I asked him, I said, now what do we do? Since the things are going on like this, I see everybody in civilian, we must be armed. He said, ah, he said, no, that is yours. Me, I'm not on, on duty. Me, I'm on course. So you take, do what you think is right. He was eerily calm. Yeah. And you, know? you were confused. I was confused. So I said, okay, if that's the case, I'm going now to look for all officers and bring them to the barracks and we see what is going on. I asked for that uh, duty truck, the pickup, to go out in town and look for all officers where they were staying in officers' mess in their houses. And at this time, 
Captain Onek and a few other officers said, we are also going to our homes to dress and then come back. I said, okay. So I went. The first person nearest to the barracks I, I knew was a, a lieutenant called Okelo, second lieutenant. We had been commissioned together, just opposite at today's Victoria Mall. So when I reached there, I knocked. This guy came out, immediately answered, dressed up in an overall. At his home, he was in the sitting room. It confused me more. I said, how? How is this person? He already knows, and he's sleeping in his overall, and I don't know. Yeah, like, hmm, something is going on here. Something is going on. So I went, I collected a few people I would get, took them to the barracks. When we reached the barracks, these officers had not yet come back, the ones who went to dress up. Among those who went to dress up was the Captain Agona. Captain Agona was the acting base commander. The real base commander had gone for a weekend, Major Nyeko had gone for a weekend in Gulu. And Captain Agona was a relatively new man in the military. He was newer than us. He, had, he was an engineer. So engineers were entering at the rank of captain. He had maybe been in the army less than a year. After being a cadet, he had been commissioned and he was uh, the acting base commander because most ranks were low at that time. So Captain Agona had gone home. Captain Onek had gone home. There was uh, another lieutenant who was our bandmaster called also Kelo. He had gone home. And many other officers had gone home. When I brought these officers, I sat in my officers, uh, in my adjutant's office, thinking of what to do next, what is happening. I couldn't tell. This whole time you thought Idi Amin was dead? This time I, I thought Idi Amin was dead. At around uh, 8 o'clock, or between 7 and 8 in the morning, one lieutenant, uh, Gideon Lusweswe, who was our paymaster, arrived with his car. He had come from Barara, he had spent a weekend outside, and uh, he arrived that morning. When he came into the barracks, him and I, we had a, a way we used to call each other, we used to call each other Vakamando. Somehow, I don't know how we nicknamed ourselves Vakamando. So he said, Vakamando, what is happening? I said, I don't know. He said, eh, I've not seen anything, there are no movements on the roads. I said, I don't know what is happening. Then, as we were talking, soldiers from the quarter guard of Katabi Barracks came running up and said, they have come, they have come. So I told Gideon, I said, why don't you go at the barracks, at the quarter guard and find out who are these people? Because we didn't know who have come now. Meanwhile, in the barracks, all the war-speaking soldiers had been armed with the guns. Officers and soldiers, all non-war-speaking soldiers, had no arms. So Gideon started walking down to go to the, because it's a hill, he was walking down to go to the quarter guard. Before reaching the quarter guard, we heard firing by the quarter guard itself. So when we heard the firing, Gideon ran back, he said, these people, we don't know who they are, but we must get out of the barracks. One of the captain, uh, director of music, Captain Okello was in my office. He panicked. He was a lawyer, all right, but I think because he used to drink a bit more than necessary, maybe he was not also briefed. He had come back while others had not come back. And he tried to run out of my office. There was a window across. 
he went out, but fortunately there was a mosquito net. He hit himself with the mosquito net. He fell back, ran, found the way and got out and ran away. So I talked to Gideon and we said, we must run out, out of here too. So we ran out to go behind the barracks to climb the hill. Katavizon is a hill to go through the MTO, where they do military transport vehicles. When we reached there, we found the women, the children are all running out. So Gideon and I decided we push over. There is a fence. There was a fence over it. We push over the women and the children over the fence. You carried them and threw them over the fence. Yes. So they start running into the hills, into the into the hill and uh, outside the barracks. So Gideon and I got out of the barracks and uh, we went into the Katavi village. While in the Katavi village, I met one soldier, a Tachinician, whom I had joined with in the army. He said, sir, I have this gun. So now I'm running, what do I do with it? I told him, I said, look, me, I'm an officer and the adjutant. I have no gun, as you can see. I don't know who gave you a gun and how you got your gun. That's your problem. Don't ask me. So we went into the village. As we were in the village of Katavi, we hear the shooting at the airport, at the international airport. Heavy shooting. I didn't know what to do. While out there, I met one cadet called Ona. He was from West Nile. So Ona is the one who woke me up, told me this thing has been going on between the people of West Nile and the Luos, and now it has come to a, a real fighting, and we don't know how it will end. I said, now what do we do? I'm here in the uniform. I'm with a, a live target. So in the village, fortunately, there was a man from West Nile whom Cadet Ona went and talked to. And I told him if he could give me a shot. But I was dressed in a, a pant which was a... We, we had Israeli uniform. I had dressed up in Israeli uniform. The pant is a, like a khaki, nice khaki. So when this guy gave me a shot... I looked like a civilian. I started walking towards coming back to our officer's mess because that's where I was staying. As I was walking, I met a young man who was working in the band. He was riding a bicycle now. He's in shorts. He said, sir, where are you going? I said, I told him I'm going to the mess. He said, oh, be careful. Don't take the main road because since you're an officer, you don't know who might um, shoot you or not. I said, okay. I started walking by the side of the road through Katavi to come to Officer's Mess, which was, uh, as I said earlier, by the State House. As I was walking, I said, uh, how do I go to the Officer's Mess when I don't know who is there? I had a friend who used to work at the International Airport uh, supplying aviation fuel. But this friend of, uh, of ours had been dismissed out of the Army in 1966. He was a Muganda, and they had said Baganda cadets were conspiring against the government, so he had been dismissed. But he had a diploma in engineering, so he had got a work at the airport with Shell. So he was staying in a house just below State House, in a house owned by Shell. So I went there. I found him at home. When I found him there, we talked. We said, now, what do we do? We said, what we do, we'll cross the lake in the evening at Nakiwogo, cross to Waya and uh, walk towards Tanzania or something like that. Then um, 
he had a phone in his house. I got the phone and I called the phone in the officer's mess. When I called the phone in the officer's mess, Lieutenant Chris Mudola picked the phone. I told him, what are you doing in the mess? He said, oh, where all officers are here. Where are you? I told him I'm in Entebbe, but uh, I'm trying to come to the MS. He said, ah, you come. All officers are here. Is he from West Nile or...? No, he's a Msoga. He was a Msoga. He said, all officers are here, so you come. I asked him, is Agona there? Agona, who was the acting base commander? He said, yes, even Agona is here. Hmm. Got more confused. So I told this Stephen Semakola, my friend, where we were. We cooked and ate. He was a single man. We said, let's eat. At five o'clock, we start walking towards the Nakiwogo ferry and across to the, to the other side of Entebbe. But uh, after talking to Lieutenant Mudola and after having our, our lunch, I called the officer's mess again. Nobody was speaking. Hmm. It shocked me. But I said, let me walk there. So I walked past the Vire State House and entered the officer's mess in a, a side path, what is known here as Panya Road. When I entered the officer's mess, there was nobody. I entered our sitting room. I saw the president's picture, and the vice president's picture had been torn up to pieces. They were on the ground. Milton Obote and... Milton Obote and John Vaviha. John Vaviha was the vice president. So it really shook me. I said, now, what's happening? I got the phone. I called my office in, in the barracks, my adjutant's office. One soldier picked it and said, Afendi, where are you? I said, I'm on the officer's mess. He said, ah, we are here, but I, I, there's nobody commanding anything. You need to be here. He said, but how can I be there? I'm also, I need transport. He said, I don't know whether I will get transport, but what has happened, all the Luo officers, the buses came from Kampala. They have all been put in the buses and have been driven away. <sighs> I got a more shock. So I told him, you try to get me a vehicle to bring me to the barracks. He got me a vehicle. The vehicle came and picked me. I went to the barracks. When I reached the barracks, because as I had been told, the Luo officers, all Luo officers and uh, soldiers, they had brought, I think, two or three buses and had been taken to Kampala. So I didn't know where to start. But my interest was now to do guarding of places of interest in Entebbe. So I got some soldiers to go and guard the international airport. I got some soldiers to go and guard the airbase. But uh, as I was there, a captain from Moroto, I think he was also called Abdallah, together with the, that time was second lieutenant Juma, Juma, who is normally known as Butabika, but it's called Juma Oka, they came to the barracks. They said, what's happening here? I said, oh, we are here, but uh, we don't know what's going on everywhere, but I will send soldiers to guard the places. They said, okay. We'll also go and look at where these guard people are and we, we help, maybe we bring in more guards. I said, okay. These officers left. I stayed in the barracks the whole night. Of course, communication is poor. You can only call people who have phones in their homes or in offices. 
But earlier in the day, before we ran out of the barracks, I had got a call. This call came from uh, Major Ogwal, who was a formerly a commanding officer of the Air Force. But he had been transferred to Masindi as a commanding officer of artillery because he was not an Air Force guy. And uh, he had called in the office of, of the commander of the air base. My office was next to the commander's office. So I heard the phone ringing. I opened the door. I went, I picked the phone. This guy talked straight away in the law. I said, what? He said, who is that? I said, this is the left, second lieutenant keys. I said, oh, is the Captain Agona there? I said, Captain Agona is not there. He said, oh, if Captain Agona is, comes back, you give him this number to call me. This is Major Gual. I wrote down the number and I kept it at the base commander's desk. So those are the things which showed that there was a real rift between the officers of the West Nile and the officers of the low speakers. The lieutenant Roti who was picked in the mess where I started following them to go with them, when the shooting started outside, he did not run out of the barracks with me and Gideon. He went and hid into one of the latrines of the toilets, the public toilets at the barracks. So when the people who came driving the vehicles which attacked the barracks arrived in, he joined them. We don't know how he was communicating with them, but they had met, I guess, and made uh, some decision. But they, he just joined them and became one of them. He was from... He was from West Nile. And, the, was... and these people were from where? The people who came in were all from West Nile. They are the ones who had now got the arms and got all the vehicles and they were the ones now in, in charge. And before, by the way, going to the barracks, before the truck arrived to pick me from the officer's mess, all of a sudden I saw outside people, civilians, waving leaves and uh, trees and flowers, singing, Obote has gone, Obote has gone. Why didn't they like Obote? They didn't like Obote, of course, because of the Uganda issue. Obote had, in uh, 1964, returned what is called as the lost counties of Nyoro. Two counties had been returned in a, in a referendum. The referendum, one, the people wanted to go back to Nyoro. The Kabaka was the president. He refused to sign it. Obote, as the pre executive prime minister, signed it. And then he had put this curfew. Then he had uh, attacked the Lubiri in 1966, and the Kawaka had run into exile, and the Kawaka had already died in exile. So there was a rate of animity between the Baganda and the central government. So everybody was very, very happy in the entire town, jubilating. So we took it from there. Some of my soldiers at the base said uh, some law officers they were already in aircrafts, ready to do action, without any authority from anybody within the Air Force. Because as I was there, the acting adjutant, and there was no base commander, they should have got orders from someone, not just go and enter the aircrafts and start waiting for orders to take off. But those orders never came because the Lua people lost out from the beginning. How did they lose out? Well, what I told you earlier about what happened in, in Lubiri when uh, Oito Jok went and addressed soldiers on that Sunday evening. When Oito Jok left, I was told the commanding officer of the battalion came and started talking to the soldiers. 
in Luo. When he talked to the soldiers in Luo, the soldiers of West Nile got angry. This I was told by reliable sources. When they got angry, some of them just ran to the armory where the arms are kept and broke the armory and all of them got arms where this guy was still addressing. They arrested him together with the all other law speakers who were inside the barracks. So they got the keys of the armored personnel carriers, known as APCs, the tanks, all other vehicles. And those are the vehicles which ran all the way to Entebbe, actually, to take over Entebbe. Continue telling us exactly how that event went on and how Idi Amin eventually took over power from your perspective. Well, as I've told you, before I went to Katabi barracks, civilians were running in Tebe very happy. An officer had gone on to Radio Uganda, which was the only radio at that time, because the whole morning they were playing just martial music on the radio. So he announced that the government has been taken over by soldiers, and the soldiers have given the powers to Idi Amin, Major General Idi Amin, to be in charge and to be the president. Well, to be in charge, initially they said to be in charge. Later, Idi Amin addressed the nation on, the, on radio. He said for him he was a career soldier. He didn't want anything to do with politics, but enumerated, I think, 18 points or something like that, or 11, I don't remember exactly, why the government had been taken over. Botes uh, sending away the Kawaka into exile, and it is Idi Amin who commanded the people who attacked the, the Rubiri. Kondoism, the armed robbery going on into the country. And he enumerated these things and said he's going to be there temporarily. He's going to arrange for general elections and people go back into peace. He will not be in power for more than two years. So people were very, very happy, thinking, yes, he's saying the truth. But it turned out not to be the truth. So how is it like for him being your commander-in-chief? Well, being commander-in-chief, as I've told you, we were low rank, we were the lowest commissioned officers. At that time, the fighting continued until the whole country was conquered by his troops. It didn't take long. And then some of the Luo officers ran towards Tanzania, those who were not arrested earlier. Idi Amin remained here consolidating himself. Then uh, eventually he started promoting officers, maybe about after four or five months, started promoting officers or men and officers to higher ranks. Some officers were made from private to major. That is jumping like 10 ranks if you count all the non-commissioned officers and the commissioned officers. And one of them was a guy called Yasin Noah. Yasin Noah was a driver, our driver while we were cadets. He used to drive us from cadets mess near State House to Katavi every morning, waits for us. Lunchtime brings us back the mess. We have lunch after lunch. He takes us back to the barracks for studies. In the evening, he brings us back. He was young and physically fit and he could play football. So the Israelis had given him to, do, to give us the extracurricular job of sports so we would play football, do running under Yassin Noah. But he was promoted from, I think, a corporal to a captain, jumping so many ranks. And we had a cobbler in the barracks. The cobbler is the one who mends his shoes. Soldier's shoes, if they are bad, they take them there, he mends them. Or if he finds they can't be mended, they give you a new pair. 
he was also from Westna. He was also promoted from other ranks. In other words, non-commissioned ranks to captain. Then for us, we remained our, as second lieutenants. No promotion. But you were still a member of the military and you were still okay with Idi Amin becoming your commander-in-chief even though it was through a coup. Like you didn't think of, these people seem unstable, I need to get out of here. I didn't think of that. I thought everything would come down sooner rather than later. We just stayed doing our work and Idi Amin, after promoting those people, he kept on promoting people. Sometime in December of 1971, he called many officers to state house. That's when we, we were thought of to be promoted, but we had been now second lieutenant for three years, more than three years. And the Armed Forces Act says a second lieutenant would be there for six months because it is a probational rank. If after six months you are, you've not made it, they don't feel you should be a lieutenant. They give you an extra six months to 12 months. After 12 months, if you cannot be promoted to a lieutenant, you should be dismissed out of the, of the military. But we were not dismissed. We stayed there and we served for three years and a half as second lieutenants. And you weren't frustrated at all that you weren't advancing? Well, we were frustrated, but uh, we just wanted to do our flying job. We stayed there. We were frustrated. But flying was your one love. Yeah. Flying was our love. We used to fly and we stayed. So I know that you did have somewhat of a relationship with Idi Amin. Could you tell us about that? Like, how did he get to know you enough for you to become promoted to be the one to fly him on the Gulf Stream? Well, really, my relationship with Idi Amin was maybe by flying him. I was appointed, as I, I think in the previous episode I had said, I was in Gulu training at Fly MiG-17 when I was called. I don't know how my name went into the, me being called. You were just good at your job and they were like... Exactly. And the person who was in charge of the Air Force at that time was Colonel Toko. And Toko really, I think somehow he liked my flying. He was a pilot also who was flying MiG-17 trained in Russia, but just immediately after me, Amin's takeover, Toko sent me to the border of Sudan and Uganda in a certain area just to look around and shoot, make as much I could shoot in that area to frighten Ugandan soldiers who maybe had run away towards Sudan border. He called me alone. It is only me who went there and did this work. I came back. The Israelis brought in an aircraft called the Jet Commander to fly the president. So Toko became a co-pilot on that aircraft. He was flying with these Israelis. Now Toko, when the Israelis left, the aircraft remained here. Toko, because he had flown it, he wanted to fly it now to Gulu. Of all the people there, he picked on me. He came, you come and you be my co-pilot. Why do you think that? Well, I can't tell really, but because of my discipline and uh, and uh, maybe my flying experience, but we all had some experience, but he picked me, we flew with the Toko, we went to Gulu. After landing in Gulu, we came back, we landed here. Now, on landing in Entebbe, somehow he did not reduce the speed to a slow speed to turn off the runway. He turned off at a very, very high speed. We almost got an accident on the runway. 
But uh, we cleared and came back. And that was the last time I think he ever flew it. He didn't go back to fly it. And uh, eventually they allowed the Israelis to come and pick that aircraft and take it. Most likely he's the one who put in my name to go on to this uh, presidential jet. Not Amin. Okay, so Idi Amin was not called the butcher of Uganda for nothing. He was doing a lot of tyrannical things. At that time, did you know those things were happening? Yes, Idi Amin was not called a butcher for nothing. He was a ruthless leader. Now, one of the things where I can tell you is that uh, in Kampala, there used to be what was called Uganda Club. This Uganda Club was for the elite, the ministers, MPs. It's just near Nakasero Presidential Lodge. So when he immediately Idi Amin took over, he made it into an officer's mess. So one day, I was in the officer's mess, and Amin was there, and the other officers. He was there now, he's the president, but he's there in the officer's mess. And the commander of the, the former base commander of the interior base called Nyeko was now in prison in Ruzira. But Nyeko used to speak Nubian, which most many people of West Nile speak. Nubian is a language spoken by people here who normally came from Sudan with the British military and they remained in Uganda. So these officers were talking with Amin and said, Oh, Nyeko talks good Nubian, and he, he, he's good, we think, but we don't know. Then Idi Amin just commented, he said, these are the people who have killed you. And he left it there. And from that day, we never saw Nyeko again. So we don't know whether he, he went and gave more orders, or when he said that, these officers went and used their own initiative and eliminated Nyeko, we don't know. So you can see a, comment, a cold comment like that, how it can cause somebody's life. Were you ever scared of your own life? Because Idi Amin, from what we've read about him and heard about him, he really believed in the dreams that he was having. If he dreamt something, he would act on that. If he had dreamt that someone has betrayed him, that person is eliminated. Did you ever worry for yourself that maybe that one day you were the last person he saw before he went to bed and he would have a random dream about you and next thing you know, no one ever hears from you again? No, I think this thing of dream of Idi Amin was a calculated thing. He, I don't think he dreamt. He used it as a, a way of uh, justifying his acts. I don't think he, he dreamt those things. This is my personal opinion. But I personally, I was never worried. The only thing I had to be cautious, whatever I did, I used to be very cautious. And uh, that's maybe what kept me alive. You just were there to do your job, to fly. You definitely did not have any political ambitions. All you wanted to do was fly. So that maybe saved you, do you think? Yeah, not being worried about Idi Amin was I was doing my work to the best of my knowledge without interfering in political things. But that still didn't mean it would save you. I just think I was lucky, as you titled this podcast. I was just lucky in many instances. You did lose some friends during that time when Idi Amin was in charge. Can you talk about some of them? Yes, I lost many friends. I lost Major Mutono. Major Mutono was my schoolmate. He was a class ahead of me in Kabalega Secondary School. Major Mutono first flew me 15, 17. 
Major Mtono, we went with him to Iraq to fly MiG-21. And Major Mtono was a Mugwere by tribe, but he had assimilated into Runyoro. He could speak Runyoro and he wouldn't think he was a Mugwere. And uh, Major Mtono had uh, a wife. Now, there was uh, another Msoga man, a civilian in Entebbe here, who was married to a white woman, a Swiss, I think, from Switzerland. So this lady was going home for holiday. She talked with Mtono's wife because they were friends. She said, let's go together to Switzerland for holiday. The wife agreed and Mtono accepted. So Mtono's wife and the, the white lady, they went to Switzerland. Once they went to Switzerland, people became suspicious about Mutono. I don't know why they thought he was sending away his family ready to go out. Then uh, one time we were at the airbase in the afternoon. An order came from Katabi Barracks where Captain Yassin was uh, the commander, the commanding officer of the airbase that they wanted Mutono in the barracks. Mutono left his car at the airbase. When he left the car at the airbase, it came to five o'clock, we all left, drove and went away. I'm a timekeeper, I, I keep time and uh, at eight o'clock I would be at the airbase. Normally the first one to arrive there. So by eight o'clock when I drove into the airbase, I saw Mutono's car standing where I had left it in the evening. My heart jumped immediately, I knew something was wrong with Mutono. So I started looking, I asked in the barracks, they wouldn't give me answers. I talked here and there, I couldn't give me answers. I called Amin and I said Mutono is missing because he knew him. He said Mutono is missing. He was called from here to the barracks yesterday and he has not appeared. He just said, uh, let General Mustafa work on it because I'm busy. He will solve it. So that was the end. We never saw Mutono and his body has never been seen. It's wild that you could call up Idi Amin like that and ask about someone. Were you not scared that he would think that, why is he asking too many questions? He needs to go too. I, I was never scared. Do you think that because you identify as Muslim and Idi Amin also was Muslim, that that could have led to some form of connection that he felt towards you? That I can't know. It might be possible. But Idi Amin didn't know I was a Muslim until after a long time when I was already a pilot on the presidential jet. There was one telephone operator who was a Muslim in State House. He's the one who one time told him, but you know, Lieutenant Colonel Kiza is a, is a Muslim. According to what I heard, he was even surprised. He said, what? Is it so? He said, yes. But I never heard anything more about that. But this was much later. But I, I can't tell what I uh, could have thought. You were just lucky. Luck is a, a big word in my life. So, I think today we'll stop here. But for the next episode, we are still continuing with the Idi Aminias. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for the reception that the podcast has got. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I thank everybody. I've seen some reviews. Many people are happy to hear what I say. Some have asked, they haven't had me going into combat, but uh, maybe next episode. But uh, I've been in, in combat, even going to the Trukanas, that was combat. I was shot there. I could have been killed there. But we'll start again with uh, Idi Amin, and uh, we'll go through our first war with Tanzania. 
Okay, so we will catch you next time. See you next Tuesday.